Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Good morning again. It's great to be with you. We're continuing in our series through the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, and we'll get started there in a moment. As Jesus continues on in his ministry, on the fringes of Israel's territory, and even uh, beyond that into Gentile territory, a debate continues to rage as to who Jesus really is. Is he the Messiah or the anointed one who Israel has been waiting for? And if he is the Messiah, then what should we expect him to do? And if you look back over the last couple of weeks, you actually get to see this tension play itself out uh, almost ironically over the course of the last few chapters. And so ironically, the, the Jewish religious leaders are rejecting him outright, and they're saying, you're not the Messiah, and as a false Messiah, you are misleading the people. You, you must be stopped. And then you have the Jewish crowds who in large part are saying, hey, he is the Messiah, but their expectation of the Messiah is that he would be a military king. And, and so that's their expectation. And they say, we need to make this guy king by force. And the crowds, as well as the Pharisees, get sent away. And then you have some of the Gentiles, or outsiders, who are actually starting to figure out who Jesus really is. And of course, a handful of others along the way. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? And what has he come to do? This would have been a pressing topic of national significance and conversation. But so far, the religious leaders are rejecting him, and the crowds have mostly misunderstood him. And so all of that is going to serve as the backdrop uh, that leads us up to the verses we'll read this morning. This is Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. There's lots of debate about who you are. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. 
Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, we gather this morning in your name, recognizing as Peter did in this key moment that you are Messiah and that you are the Son of the living God. And as a result, we expect something to be unique about these gatherings. We we actually expect you to be alive and at work among us. And so, uh, would you do that work amongst your people this morning? Would you open our eyes and open our hearts, which can be so numb to who you are, which can be so numb to the kingdom of God? Would you, would you bring our hearts to life this morning as we worship you, as we pray over one another, as we come together in your name? And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, so at today's events mark a, a bit of an explosive moment in the life of Jesus and sort of, sort of a turning point in the book of Matthew as Jesus shares this key moment of revelation with his disciples. His true identity is finally revealed and confirmed, but the setting for this conversation is a striking one. Jesus and his disciples have been uh, spending a lot of time in the northeastern region uh, around the Sea of Galilee, in the, in the northeastern section of Israel. And today's passage begins by telling us that they've just come to the city of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was one of the gateway cities into uh, Israel, but it was primarily a Roman city that had significance for the Romans. So for starters, the uh, temple of Augustus Caesar was there, and hence the city is named after Caesar, Caesarea Philippi. And within this temple, and actually across the Roman Empire, we have to remember uh, that Caesar was actually worshipped as Lord and as the Son of God. And so people would come from the surrounding region to this temple uh, to worship him as the Son of God. 
So it's the center for, en- uh, for emperor worship. Because of where it's located geographically, it's actually an important military city for the Romans. And it was a thoroughly pagan place. In fact, in the middle of Caesarea Philippi, uh, there was a large cave. And this cave, you, you can hardly tell in the picture, but it, it's, it's massive. It's something like 60 feet wide and 40 feet tall. And it, coming up out of this cave is a huge spring or well of water that would come kind of bubbling up out of it. And, and so it sort of creates this feeling of like a black hole that water is coming up from. And it was so awe-inspiring that in the Hellenistic and Roman periods, it was proclaimed the entrance to Hades or the passage to the underworld. This was, in their opinion, the gates of hell. And what happened is that a, a temple was erected around this spot where people would come to worship the pagan gods. And what would happen is that they would actually take children to the back of the temple, to the gates of hell, and sacrifice them there. And they would throw them into the pool, and if everything sank into the pool, it meant that the pagan gods had accepted their sacrifice, that they were on good terms. But if blood came bubbling back up out of the pool, it meant that their sacrifice had been rejected, and another child would need to be sacrificed. I mean, this is a place of unspeakable evil and idolatry. And yet, curiously, this is the place that Jesus uses as the backdrop to tell his disciples who he really is. And it's not clear from the text this morning if he's in the city or just outside of the city, but he gathers his disciples together with this as the backdrop, and he says, hey guys, we've had a crazy couple of months together. There's been a lot going down. What's the word on the street? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. There's a lot of debate raging right now. And then comes this key question. This question that Jesus is going to ask every single one of us. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replies, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And if you're familiar with the gospel accounts, you know that this is one of the greatest moments of Peter's discipleship. The disciples are ordinary people just like you and me, except perhaps, perhaps less educated than we've been privileged to experience. And, and as they're following after Jesus, they're constantly fumbling around. They're constantly tripping over themselves. They're constantly sticking their foot in their mouth. But on this occasion, 
you have this brilliant moment where the Spirit of God reveals Jesus' true nature and identity to Peter. And without even thinking about it, he, he just speaks it out. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, whoa, you, you get it. And, and I didn't tell you that, Peter. Do you realize that? that? That God revealed that to you. I didn't even have to say it. That, that's, that's well done, Peter. And the backdrop only adds beauty to this confession. In a world of darkness and confusion, where most of the Jews have misunderstood or rejected Jesus, where the Romans are worshiping Caesar as the Son of God and oppressing the Jews and engaging in horrific pagan worship along the way, Jesus asks the ultimate question that every human being will have to answer. What about you, he says? Who do you say I am? Not your parents or your pastor or your friends or your siblings or your spouse. No, who do you say I am? And in this moment, Peter sees Jesus for who he really is, and he answers with the truth. And immediately, Jesus says, okay, you, you've got it. Now, let me tell you who you are. Do you see how that works? When we recognize the truth about who Jesus is, it changes the truth about who we are. And Jesus says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And if Peter's confession is stunning, then Jesus' proclamation must be equally as stunning. The center of discipleship is figuring out who Jesus is because that informs who we are in response. And Jesus, with, with a bit of, of wordplay, says, says, you are a rock, and I'm going to use you to build my church and to build my kingdom, and not even the gates of hell will be able to stand against it. And we've sort of lost the, the warfare worldview in, in our modern, secular, scientific culture. But the original disciples were very aware that something was, had gone deeply wrong in, in God's good world and, and that the demonic and, and Satan were actually at the core of the problem. They were actually the very source of evil that had entered God's good creation and that was uh, twisting it so badly. And, and, and so... 
there's something there that we need to recapture. And, and whether you're at a point this morning where you're already on board with that or not, I think we can all agree that in this life, you will be confronted with evil. And that evil may be out there in the world. It, it may be the evil within our own hearts. It may be the very real spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms. The, the evil, it could be the evil which becomes embedded in, in our corrupt human systems and societies and, and middle school lunch tables. But either way, you will encounter evil. And the impulse at that point will probably be to withdraw. Withdraw from the culture, run from evil, step back from radical discipleship, take on a burden of fear. That's the impulse. But notice what Jesus is saying here. He's saying the gates of hell will not prevail against my spirit-empowered church. And while he's using as an illustration the pagan worship of Caesarea Philippi, what he's referring to is something that goes way beyond pagan worship in the ancient world. He's referring to the very heart of Satan's power and control. The gates of an ancient city were not offensive weapons that one had to be on guard against. They were defensive. And if there was a war, which there is, then you would be certain to find the king and his top officials inside the gates where, where they could run the campaign from a place of safety. And Jesus says that his church will not run from evil, or turn a blind eye to evil, or stand apathetic and helpless in the face of evil, but rather that they will be empowered by the Spirit of God to storm the gates of hell and to set its captives free. There is nothing in this imagery that is defensive or fearful. It is a full-on aggressive attack. The dominion of darkness is not to be feared. In fact, they fear you. And Jesus says, despite their best efforts at defending themselves, my church will have the power to batter down the gates of hell and overturn the work of the enemy in the process. And this imagery, I believe, is confirmed by the strange comments that follow. Jesus says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In other words, yes, I am the Son of God. And the community of people 
who recognize my true nature, who follow me and, and worship me based on my true nature and who I really am, the people who come under my kingship will be united with me to such a fantastic degree that they will actually share in my power and authority. I will be in them, and they will be in me. They will be full-on participants of the inbreaking kingdom of light, which has as its opposing opposite the dominion of darkness. And Jesus says, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. I'm not holding back. And you, as a flawed, imperfect, self-conscious person, will be given full access to this in-breaking kingdom and with it, the power to free people from the dominion of darkness. And I can't tell you how many times I've read this, this binding and loosing language and, and just kind of shrugged my shoulders. Like, what, what on earth does that mean? And to be fair, there are several legitimate explanations which seem to hold, hold water. But the one that I find most compelling is that the Spirit-filled church of Jesus is then empowered to bind up the enemy in Jesus' name and authority. And when you do that, he's bound. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And within that, you have actually been given power and authority to go and loosen and remove the, the chains that have kept people in bondage to darkness. And, and when you loose those chains on earth, they, they will be loosed in, in, the, in the heavenly realms, in the deeper reality. I can only really picture the binding and loosing in terms of the spiritual warfare that Jesus is constantly engaging in and, and talking about, and, and which he then engages us uh, to, to, and empowers us to, to then go engage in as well. The dominion of darkness wants you to think that you are powerless. Powerless to resist, powerless to challenge, unable to stop those dark spiritual forces which twist and corrupt God's good world. And Jesus is saying, no, my kingdom is greater and the people in my kingdom will share in my authority as king. And part of that authority entails binding up the oppressive forces and, and loosing the chains of the captives that they hold. This passage tells us not just who Jesus is as Messiah and, and Son of the living God, but also who we are in return. And that's vital. Uh, who and what we are in Christ as, as the Spirit-filled church is vital. As we encounter evil in the world, we need to remember who Christ has made us to be and what He's made available to us in, in the process.
you have the keys to the kingdom. You do. And, and now we can walk in the victory of Jesus and see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we could stop right there and I think it would be enough for us to meditate on this morning. Uh, Jesus is king. And as we come under his kingship, we are made into new creations who are given full access to his inbreaking kingdom. And we are empowered to overcome darkness with light and evil with good. And some of you... <clears throat> You just need to be reminded of that this morning. By the power of the Spirit, the resources of the kingdom are now available to you. Satan and the dominion of darkness do not have authority over you. Jesus does. And, and, and that changes things. That actually changes day-to-day -day living. That, that changes the way that we follow after Him. And so when we come together on Sundays, one of the things that we're celebrating is that sin and Satan and death no longer have mastery over you. But within that, what we are also celebrating is that because we are in Christ and Christ is in us, you now have mastery over them. The same forces and powers that used to bind us and now have to submit to Jesus' authority within us. And, and so if nothing else, this morning is an encouragement to walk in that authority. How sad that Jesus has given us power and too often we submit to the forces of darkness out of fear. Or apathy. How sad that, that we encounter people day in and day out who, who are bound and, and trapped and stuck and, and we kind of shrug our shoulders in, in the very moments that we could be offering freedom in Christ. One of the most remarkable truths in the universe is that Jesus is king over all of it. And Peter has just figured that out with 10, 12 guys around a campfire outside Caesarea Philippi. But before we close, it's worth noting the type of king that Jesus is. The type of king that, that he, the way that he rules and the way that he calls us to follow. So far, we've talked about identity and we've talked about power. And, and those, are, those are good, rich, meaningful concepts for us to talk about. But no sooner do the disciples figure out that Jesus is Messiah and King, does Jesus immediately begin to challenge their notions of what it means to be Messiah and what it means to be King. There were many uh, Old Testament scriptures that were prophetically anticipating the Messiah. Uh, but some, like Psalm 2 or Daniel 2, and many others, pictured him as a victorious king 
crushing the enemies of God. And then there was another set of kind of lesser acknowledged messianic texts which pictured him as the suffering servant bearing the sins of the world. And as the Jews suffered under this uh, oppressive, evil Roman Empire, you can guess which set they gravitated towards. Which set became their distinct focus, the center of their hope. Of course, it was the victorious king come to crush the pagan empires and usher in a literal, physical kingdom of God on earth. For Peter to say, you are the Messiah who will victoriously lead us as an anointed human, and you are the Son of God, it connects these two together, that was, that was revolutionary. But it still begs the question of just what type of Messiah Jesus will be. And, and so he explains it to them in the verses we read this morning. We'll pick up in verse 21. It said, from that time on, or, or from that conversation onwards, Jesus began to explain to his disciples, okay, you know who I am. Now immediately, here's what you have to get next. He began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem as reigning king, maybe, no, uh, no, to suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Wait, what? The Messiah suffer under evil authority? And then die? And, and you can just hear Peter kind of clearing his throat in the back, right? <clears throat> Excuse me, Jesus, if I might interject here. That's actually not what Psalm 2 says. And that's not what Daniel 2 says. And, and I got a long list of others. Like, I know you're the Messiah, but I think you need my help. I, I don't think you totally thought through your job description here. Might I interject? So, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord! This shall never happen to you. Haven't you been reading your Bible? You're not the suffering servant. You're the victorious one who's come to liberate us and perhaps all of creation. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter, just a second ago, the Spirit of God was speaking through you, and now the Spirit of Satan. Oh, man. I mean, welcome to church. What a mixed bag we are. But notice Peter's mistake. He's, he's not thinking like Jesus. He, he's not thinking in line with the kingdom. He, he's thinking like the world. The world loves power and authority and victory and, and domination and, and elevating ourselves above others. It's, it's just what we do. 
as human beings. But then Jesus shows up on the scene and he starts talking about this thing called the kingdom of God. And we realize pretty quickly that in the kingdom of God, everything is exactly the opposite. It's an upside down kingdom. And it's disorienting in the best possible way. In the kingdom of God, the greatest will become the least. And then in the age to come, the least will become the greatest. In the kingdom of God, humility is wisdom. And pride is folly. In the kingdom of God, weakness actually gets turned into strength. And the strength of the world is actually revealed as weakness. In the spirit of self-centeredness and self-elevation begins to shrivel and die in the face of love and self-sacrifice. It's an upside-down kingdom. But if you're thinking like the world, then you'll miss the heart behind the kingdom. So, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, not elevate yourselves, and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good would it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? In other words, yes, Peter, I am the true king. And my kingdom has already begun breaking into this world in bits and pieces, turning people from darkness to light and robbing the enemy's house. That's all set in motion right here and right now. And one day, my kingdom will come in full. And when it does, every last ounce of darkness will be extinguished and snuffed out. And God will at last be all in all. But in the meantime, you have to choose. You have to choose between me and the world. You have to choose between eternal glory or hedonistic pleasure in the here and now. You have to choose to die to the old self and the thinking of the world that you might be alive to me. This is the essence of discipleship. Come and die so that you might live. The only alternative is that you live only for yourself and in the end you die. That's it. And and the choice is yours, but might I gently remind you that you could gain everything in this world And in the end, you've gained nothing. And perhaps you've lost the only thing that truly matters along the way. But if you forsake the world 
in, in its way of thinking and come under the kingship of Jesus, you will encounter a, a new type of life that, that is richer and more meaningful than anything you have tasted up to that point. And in the end, God the Father will reward those who have lived their lives for Him. You will receive an eternal crown that will never fade. This isn't rocket science. it's, It's not a trick question. But Peter, you have to keep your eyes on the kingdom. You have to grasp the heart behind it. If you think this is all about power and victory and domination, then think again. The center of my victory is going to be the cross. This this is the heart of God. This is the heart behind the kingdom. This is the heart behind discipleship to the king. And in the eyes of the world, the cross is foolishness, and it is shame, and it is defeat. But in reality, in the upside-down kingdom, it is revealed as the place of glory and wisdom and honor. And more than that, the place of defeat in the eyes of the world is actually the place of victory over the forces of darkness. I am the true king, Jesus says, but only in the cross will you see the true heart of my kingship displayed in sacrificial love. For what the world thought was weakness was actually strength. This then becomes the heart of discipleship. All of it, everything we've been talking about this morning, captured in a few short conversations around a campfire in in Caesarea Philippi. If you're looking for the essence of discipleship, this is it. If you're wondering what following Jesus is all about, it's all right here. So to recap this morning, as we close, uh, the first step of discipleship is that we recognize that Jesus is the Son of God and the victorious Messiah. And we place our, our active faith and trust in Him. If you've never done that before, that's the invitation that's not just extended to you, but, but to every single man, woman, and child on the planet This invitation is extended. He approaches each and every one of us to ask, what about you? Who do you say I am? Everything else in the universe, including your eternity, hinges on how you answer that question. Everything. And if you answer that question the way that Peter did, then we become part of his kingdom. And as we do, 
that we walk in the victory of Jesus, that he has won over the dominion of darkness, and we share in his authority as king. You're, you're part of the family after you've placed your faith in Jesus. And you're so united with the king that you share in his authority. We storm the gates of hell. And I don't care if the evil that you're encountering is strongholds of sin, which are strangling your walk with Jesus, or if it's global systems of sex trafficking, or anything in between. Our response is the same. We walk in the victory of Jesus and we claim his power and authority to batter down the gates of hell, period. We allow who he is as the victorious king to then inform who we are as his spirit-empowered church. Next, As we submit our lives to the kingship of Jesus, we accept his invitation to come and die. In the here and now, when the alarm goes off tomorrow morning, I want us to sense this invitation daily, hourly. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and come Follow me. There is no clearer call to discipleship. Having been claimed and redeemed by the king on the cross, we are now called to live cross-shaped lives. This is the essence of discipleship. And finally, as you inevitably feel the tension between the cross that you are called to carry and the alternatives which the world constantly offers us. Jesus reminds us this morning that ultimately there is no better life. In the here and now, when the alarm goes off earlier than you would like, and you don't want to go through another day, you remember there is no better life in the here and now than following after Jesus as a disciple. And tomorrow morning, when that alarm goes off, I want you to remember that there is more to life than the here and now. That in fact, a new age is coming. And those who have followed Jesus faithfully and carried their cross after him will be rewarded in that place by our Father in heaven. The fact is that Jesus will return, that he will crush evil once and for all under his feet. And the fact that Jesus' kingdom will inevitably one day wash over the cosmos has to affect how we live in the here and now. It has to affect what tomorrow looks like. That's what it means to follow Jesus. In short, we recognize that Jesus is king. We walk in the power of the king. We walk in the radical self-sacrifice of the king, dying to the old self, dying to the world, that we might be alive and embrace his new creation work within us. 
and we fight the good fight of the faith, knowing that in the end, you will receive your reward. This is discipleship to Jesus. And, and, and this is what we're committing our lives to as we follow after him. Let's pray.